0: Wasn't that wonderful? The best thing that could happen now would be the Lord just come and take us right up into his presence. I want to thank you all again for the opportunity to be with you, to enjoy your fellowship for all the many acts of love and kindness, and just let you know that you're taking a trip with me tomorrow morning, because I'm taking you all in my heart back to Spain one day we won't have to say goodbye. We'll go to the city whose gates open outward nevermore. It'd be wonderful to be there, won't it? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're studying the judgment seat of Christ. For those of you who are visiting today, you're coming in on the, the last little bit of the story. The last little bit of the book, the last chapter. We've been studying this all week. And it wouldn't hurt us to study it all year. We've been reading various scriptures in the New Testament that tell us about the judgment seat of Christ. And this is one of them. This is perhaps the principal passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll begin reading at verse 9 where the Lord says, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, Shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we come and give thanks for the Word of God and for the opportunity that we have to read and to study it that we have it in our own language, and that we live in a place where we have freedom to meet, to gather as Christians, to worship the Lord Jesus, and to study God's word, to have fellowship together. We pray for our brothers and sisters in different places around the world today who do not have this freedom. And we just pray that you would be with each of them in a special way and bless them and supply whatever their needs might be. And now for ourselves, we ask as we look into your word, That your Holy Spirit would guide our thoughts, would open the eyes of our understanding, would speak to our hearts. That the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified in our midst. That we would have a, a fresh understanding of him as our Lord and Master and as of our lives as an opportunity to serve him and glorify him. Guide us and lead us in the pathway of your blessing. For we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul talks about a foundation and a building. He talks about the foundation in verse 11, verse 10 and verse 11. I have laid the foundation. And he identifies the foundation in verse 11. And the foundation is not the church. The foundation is not the The apostolic fathers. It's not the church writers. It's not the councils and creeds of the church. The foundation is not the sacraments. The foundation is not the saints. There's only one thing, one person that is the foundation. And that is, he says here, another foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. What did the apostle Peter, who some people believe was the first pope, never mind that. But if they believe it, they ought to take him seriously. What did he say when they asked him? When he had his opportunity to speak about why he was preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus Christ. He said, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. No other name. And there's no other foundation. And the apostles were very clear about this. The apostles did not allow, apostolic Christianity did not allow for any man-made hierarchy to come between the living God, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the soul of the believer. It is absolutely essential that each person come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he, as he gives us this here in verses 10 and 11, he is setting things in order for us. We're talking in these two verses about the foundation. But the Apostle Paul is coming to talk about something else. He wants to talk to the Christians. He wants to speak with the Christians in Corinth, not with all the pagans in Corinth and the people who had not come to faith in Christ yet. He wants to speak to the Christians in Corinth and he wants to talk to them about their lives and their works and their service. So first of all, he speaks about the foundation because the only way a person can really call himself A Christian is if he has that foundation. In America, there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who don't have any idea what the word means. They call themselves Christians as a way of saying, I'm not Buddhist. Or, I'm a Christian, I'm not Muslim. Or, I'm a Christian, I'm not an atheist. I'm a Christian because I believe in God. Would you say that the demons are Christians? Are demons Christians? The scripture says that the demons believe in God and tremble. So if you say you're a Christian because you believe in God, you're not any better off than a demon. The demons know that God exists. They believe in him. And so when the apostle Paul here says, other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's not talking about believing in God. The demons do that. He's talking about a personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And all of us who can identify with those words that were sung by the choir in that first hymn, bow the knee. We know what it means, don't we? A Christian is a person who has come to place his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has bowed the knee to him. He's confessed Jesus as Lord, for thou shalt confess The Lord Jesus, believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. Thou shalt be saved. It's absolutely necessary. And so when the Apostle Paul speaks about this foundation, uh, we've been talking about building on the foundation this week. But I, I want us to remember just for a moment for those who haven't been here for these studies and who perhaps are not as clear as some of us at least should be on this matter. I would like for us to remember that when we come to the foundation, which is Jesus Christ, from that point on, our sins are all forgiven and forgotten. All sins of the believer in Jesus Christ are covered by the blood of Christ. And that's why we said in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But I would like to remind you this morning that for those who are not in Christ Jesus, there is condemnation. And we are not ashamed to tell you. And we would be less than faithful to God and to the Holy Scriptures if we did not tell you and warn you in the clearest of terms that there is condemnation for every person who does not belong to Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 8, let's turn to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 8 and verse 12 When the Lord speaks of the new covenant. He says in these wonderful words in Hebrews 8, 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. When a person through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Comes into this new covenant. This is what he has. Forgiveness of sins We can say he has the forgiveness of God and he has the forgetfulness of God. God is a good forgetter. Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. How can omniscience forget? Well, we're not going to delve into the theology of it. We're going to take God at his word. He said, the one who belongs to Jesus Christ, who has come into this covenant by Faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior who has trusted in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world to take away his sin. This person, Romans 8, 1 says, will not come into condemnation. This person, Hebrews chapter 8 says, under the terms of the new covenant, his sins will not be remembered any longer by God. But let me ask you a question this morning. Have you come to the place where you can say for certain that if you were to die today you would go to heaven that you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know absolutely for certain that, that is true? Because if you don't, if you cannot answer with 100% positive, with assurance from the scriptures and in your own heart and demonstrated by your own life that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that you are a believer in him, then let me tell you something. God will remember your sins. God will remember your sins with perfect memory. The omniscient God who knows everything. Yes, even things that you had forgotten. And things that you hoped that other people had forgotten. And things that you thought, well, since time has gone by. And time heals all wounds, they say, which is one of the lies that people tell in this life. Time changes absolutely nothing with God. He lives outside of it. And one day, all of these sins, they can only be forgotten in the case of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, who have come to take Him as their Lord and Savior. And they believe in Him who died for them at the cross of Calvary. And they say, when Christ died, He was dying for me. That was my sins He was suffering for. I did the sinning. And He took my place and did the dying And I know that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was paying for my sins. And I trust him, the Lamb of God. I trust him that I have forgiveness of sin because of what he did for me at Calvary. All those sins are under the blood of Christ. That means they're washed away. They're taken away. Like in the Old Testament when they had the scapegoat and they put their hands on the on the goat and they confessed their sins on his head and then they took him off and they led him out into the wilderness and they let him go and he went off into a place uninhabited and he was never seen again. The sins of the Christian. Christians are not perfect, but the sins of the Christian are forgiven. They've been taken away into a place uninhabited. They've been washed away by the blood of Christ. And God himself promises that he will not remember our sins. So when we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, for those of us who are believers, we're not talking about the judgment of our sins, which will then lead to condemnation. All of those things will not be named and mentioned. But if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ, I tell you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and the authority of the scriptures of God this morning, your sins will be remembered. Mark my words, you heard it today today you will no longer be able to claim ignorance. You heard it today. Your sins will be remembered. And the only way out of that terrible predicament, an excruciating review of your sins, when the books are opened, the books of works, and you will be judged according to your works, a judgment that leads only to condemnation, the only way out of that is to face that guilt and condemnation that belongs to you today and to say... That's mine. But today, I trust in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I come to him. I'm looking for refuge. I'm looking for forgiveness and salvation. And until you do that, until you do that, John 3, 36 is true. The wrath of God abides on you. But I'm so happy to tell the believers here this morning That we don't have to face wrath. God is not reserving us for wrath, but for salvation. And it's going to be a wonderful thing when we're in heaven. When we're taken up, we hear that voice, that trumpet, and we're taken up to see the Lord, to be with Him forever. And there's going to be joy in heaven forever. The first stop, as our brother Dean said, the first thing the Lord is going to do. Once the church is gathered, Once all believers are there united in Christ forever. And even as tribulation judgments begin to fall on this earth. The Lord in heaven will be dealing with his church. For judgment must begin. We saw 1 Peter, 2 Peter says judgment must begin at the house of God. It must. And so when the Apostle Paul comes to verse 12 here in chapter 3. He says now if any man... Build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Every man's work shall be made manifest. He's speaking primarily, we might say, about those who are involved in ministry of preaching and teaching and discipling whatever they're building as he had done when he came there. But in a greater sense, in a greater sense and very true, these scriptures must be applied to all of us because he says every man's work shall be made manifest. And so we're all building something on the foundation. But some people, when they come to heaven, are going to find the foundation is the only thing that's left. Christ did his job. And those who preached the gospel faithfully so that you might be saved did their job. But what did you do after that? Every man's work shall be made manifest. I want us to think for a few minutes this morning about the severity of the judgment seat of Christ. The severity of it. In verse 13 he says, For the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Back in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 23 In verse 29, uh, verse 28, The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? There are a lot of dreamers among Western evangelicals today. A lot of people talking about their dreams. You have a dream... You talk about your dream. He says, but let the one who has my word speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat? The dream is the chaff and God's word is the wheat. And he says in verse 29, Is not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? And the word of God preached by Jeremiah was just like that. It was like a fire. The word preached by Jeremiah in that city of Jerusalem was just like a hammer. And all of the preconceived ideas, all of, the, of their vain traditions, and, and all of their worldliness that they would not repent of. Their pagan behavior. And he was telling them on and on, again and again, judgment is coming, judgment is coming. Jeremiah was speaking inside the city of Jerusalem about the coming judgment of God. The prophet Ezekiel, his companion, was preaching at the same time in captivity to the captives, telling them that more judgment was coming. Those two men were raised up by God to warn the nation of Israel. But neither those in captivity nor those in the city of Jerusalem would pay any attention to what the prophet said. This is the way the word of God is. And we may be sure that when the judgment seat of Christ comes, and as we saw the other evening, when the standard is brought to bear, On our lives and our works. That standard is going to be the word of God. Which burns away everything that is not in agreement with the word of God. That is not according to the word of God. Like that architect who got out that blueprint and looked and he said you take that out and move this and tear this down. And it doesn't matter how popular people have been. It doesn't matter how well thought of they have been in their community. It doesn't matter how praised they have been. And all people are so proud. They're so proud of their organizations and their titles and their degrees and their little social clubs and their theological achievements. And they brag on the number of people that come. And they brag on the programs that they have. And they feel so content because apparently everything is going good. But Judgment Day is coming. Judgment Day is coming. And the... The blueprint is going to be opened and here it is and we have it before us and none of us are going to be able to say, oh, I didn't know that. And less in this church, even less in this church where people are faithfully taught the scriptures. Less excuse. It doesn't matter if it's popular. It doesn't matter if it's praised. If they can get on Christian television and in Christian magazines and have the applause and the approval of men. What does that mean? What does all of that mean? It means absolutely nothing. What matters is this one thing? What has God said in His Word? Every man's work shall be made manifest. And brother, sister, you better believe it's going to be made manifest by the light of this book. It's going to be made manifest. What kind of work is it, he says? Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it. It'll be declared. It'll be made manifest. It'll be revealed. Nothing is going to be hidden. There's not going to be any secret conference in a private room where no one else will find out. Manifest, revealed, declared. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And this is what God wants to say to us through this this verse. What sort of work are you doing? What sort of life are you living? What sort of Christian Life are you living. What sort of Christianity do you have? Do you have a worldly Christianity? Do you have a, a worldly and prideful, a socially acceptable Christianity? Oh, well, I belong to the first such and such church of such and such. Oh, and all our people come from such and such theological seminary. Oh, we go back to the days of the reformers and all they're missing are the suspenders, the pull on. As they're walking around and bragging about this and bragging about it. And we have this program and that program. And we're all fine, upstanding people. We all have our degrees and our place in society. We're a respectable church. We're not doing what God said in his word. But we're respectable. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. The scripture says. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. For so did they speak of the false prophets. Oh, the false prophets were excellent at that. They knew how to get along with everyone. If they were around today, oh, they are around today. But I mean, if they were around in this capacity today, they would be public relations managers. Now, if there's a public relations manager out here somewhere, you just forgive me and I'm not picking on you. But there's no room for this kind of stuff in Christianity. God has not called us to be on good terms with the world. God has called us to preach the gospel. It disturbs me and I feel for people who do not believe in Christ. But I will not reduce the message to something they like. Because one day I must stand before the one who gave the message. And if there's any difference on that day, in that light, in Scripture the light of scripture and the light of the glory and the omniscience of God, if there's any difference between that message that he gave and the message that I preached, if there's any difference between these instructions given to us in his word and the kind of lives we lived, if there's any difference between the instructions given to us in this book and the kind of church we had, The fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is, he says. And if any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. When a person has built using gold and silver and precious stones, he doesn't worry about the fire. Those things are only purified by fire. But wood, hay, and stubble, which are found in abundance and are easy materials to build with and are cheap, those will burn up. They'll all be gone. What sort of work, what sort of service, what sort of Christian life is yours this morning? We are coming to a time when we are going to face the living God and stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. And the severity of that judgment seat is every person's work will be tried of what sort it is. Now, if there is a sigh of relief in any of this for us, it comes in verse 15 when he says, If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved. Because we know, and I will say it again, lest anyone confuse it, Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ and not of works, lest any man should boast. But this passage is not talking about salvation. Are we on the same page? This passage is not talking about salvation. And some people are reading this passage and they're worrying about this passage. They shouldn't even be worrying about it because they're not even going to be at the judgment seat of Christ. Because they're not even saved. They're going to be facing a different judgment. And if you're worried about your sins, and if you're fearful to appear before the living God, and these kind of passages disturb you, you need to well you do well to examine yourself. Say, am I sure? Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Am I sure that I have trusted in Jesus Christ? Am I sure that He's my Lord and Savior, that all my sins have been taken away? Has my life been changed? Am I a different person? Or am I the same old person as before with a religious robe, Put on me. We say in Spanish, El habito no hace el monje. I don't even know how you say that in English, so I don't know why I said it. <laughs> because, because I think in Spanish and I'm translating to English. It's not the clothes that make the man, it's not the, the habit that makes the monk. It's what takes place on the inside. And a true believer, even though we tremble, at the thought of standing before Christ and having our lives and our works examined, we don't tremble at, at it for the reason that we think we might end up in hell because we already know. What, whatever happens at that judgment seat, I will be saved because I trusted in Jesus Christ. But let me warn the rest of you, don't have any false confidence and do not be confused about this and don't say, well, I hope that applies to me because if you're not sure, you're on very dangerous ground. Very dangerous ground. Every man's work shall be tried. And if any man's work shall be burned, it contemplates the possibility that some people's works will be burned. They will be lost completely. Because they weren't done for Christ. Because they weren't done according to His word. Because they weren't guided by the Holy Spirit. Because they weren't for the glory of God. Because they didn't honor Christ. Because they weren't done out of love for Christ. All of those things that we saw the other evening. Those standards applied and these things will be burned up. There will be nothing as a result. Nothing left. The judgment seat of Christ will be severe. Not only because of the fire of God's word and the penetrating eyes and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ will be applied to the life of every person. It will also be severe because it will be absolute and complete. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. We can read verse 12 as well. It says, For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Let me just inject this here. The word of God is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And you might be able to say down here, oh, well, nobody can judge my heart. And you're wrong, because God can. And he'll use his word to do it. And the thoughts and the intents of your heart. It's better for us to learn to subject the thoughts and the intents of our heart to God's word right now, Than to hide behind this fake excuse of nobody knows what I'm thinking or what I'm feeling. Because God does. And one day it will all come out. The thoughts and the intents of the heart. He says in verse 13, neither is there any creature. Are you a creature? Or are you a rock? A stone? A block of cement? What are you? Are you a creature? Are you a living creature? There is no creature That is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. All things. This is absolute transparency. There are some people that come to meetings and they put on their meeting face, and they put on their meeting voice. And when they're in the home, they're a different way. And, and in the meeting, they know they're in the group of Christians and they have to talk respectfully about the things of God. But when they're at home, they're saying, oh, well, I don't believe this. And why do you believe that? And why do they do this? And what about this? And criticizing and and, and aggravated by the word of God. And they let it all come out at home. They're, they're two different people. They're Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And then there are other people who come to the meeting and they sit and they know they have to behave. Their parents are there. But when they're out with their friends or in their gang, they're acting a completely different way. Let me tell you something. You can't fool God. Stop playing with God before he lowers the boom on you. Absolute transparency. There is no creature not manifest in his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And when the time comes at the judgment seat, the eyes of him with whom we have to do will expose everything about the Christian. And that same one who sees and knows us all is also going to expose completely all of those who are false believers, who are not at the judgment seat of Christ. False Christians, false brethren. The scripture talks about them. Paul says he was in danger among thieves. In danger in the country. In danger in the sea. In danger in the city. He says, I was in danger among false brethren. They're some of the most dangerous creatures that you can be around. God's going to deal with all of them one day, too. And if you're a fake Christian, a false brother or sister. Don't be worrying about the judgment seat because you're not going there. You're not going there. One of the surprises at the judgment seat of Christ is going to be the people who are not there. The people who are not there, they're going to another judgment. And in the judgment seat of Christ, even though uh, this judgment will be severe and will be all inclusive and intense, it comes to the, that, those last words of that verse that say, but he himself shall be saved. This we know. This we know. That because we have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, salvation will not be lost At that judgment seat. Reward will be lost. Joy will be lost. Rejoicing. But not salvation. But for those who don't make it. Because neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. But all things are naked and open. Under the eyes of him with whom we have to do those eyes will expose everything. Every day, hundreds of sins, of attitude, thought, word, deed, omission. Every day, for years and years, imagine what a mountain of sins piled up. Imagine what a burden to be carried to the judgment of God and to have no forgiveness and no mercy and no hope forever. Because all things are open. You can fool your parents. You can fool the elders. You can fool your husband. You can fool your wife. But you can't fool God. You can't fool God. And that's who you're going to meet. And that's why the judgment seat of Christ is such a serious thing for us. Because as Christians, we should not live to impress people or to gain the applause of people. We should live to please God. We've said this a hundred times. Minimum. We should live to please God. Our lives should be lives of obedience to God. After all he's done for me. After all he's done for me. How can I do less than give him my best. And live for him forever. After all he's done for me. We sing it. But do we do it? Well the time is coming. And the Lord is going to look at our lives to see if we have done it. But this, these verses here, first in uh, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, these verses are the kind of verses that make the hypocrites nervous. The severity of the judgment seat of Christ. This is what the hypocrites can't stand. The people who, who have lived double lives, who've learned to fool the Christians. They've learned the talk and the language and the, the behavior at the appropriate times. These are the smooth operators. They know how to fit in, but they're not going to fit in when it counts the most. The smooth operators are going to be exposed. And the, at the judgment seat of Christ, the superficial Christians are going to be exposed. The ones who, had, who were believers, but they had all the right words at the meeting. And whenever they talked to Adel or Mike or Bill, they had the right words. That's the way it is. I know as I move around different places in the world, most of the people that I talk to, they see me for five minutes, ten minutes, one hour. Their life is not exposed to mine. And so, who knows how they're really living? But this I say, the Lord knows. There's no reward for just coming up and giving polite, correct conversation to the preacher. The Lord gives the rewards to those who live for him, who live for him. The Christian life is lived in the trenches on a day-to-day basis. And that's what he's going to examine. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. It didn't mean he was afraid to go meet the Lord. But it meant there was a deep-seated respect, a reverence, and an awe for God. It wasn't a light thing. He didn't take it lightly, the idea that he was going to appear before God. He didn't say, oh, well, it doesn't matter because we're saved by grace and we're all going to be in heaven anyway. When people talk like that, they worry me. As if it didn't matter what Christ tells us. This book full of commands about how we ought to live. As if it didn't matter. Doesn't matter. We're just going to all go to heaven anyway. Like God is some kind of a celestial dummy. He doesn't really know what we're doing. And he doesn't really care furthermore. Oh, but he does care. In the judgment seat of Christ, all of life is going to be exposed. Think about it this way. The Lord has given you... And certain talents, have you used them for the Lord and for his glory? The Lord has given you certain resources. Have you used them for the Lord and for his glory? What will happen to the resources, your time and money and other things, material things that you have had? What will happen to all of that on the day that you face the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ? And he reviews how you have used what you've had for his service, for his honor and his glory. Remember that day in the temple when they, it says uh, the Lord Jesus sat by the offering and he looked as they put it in and it said, many rich cast in much. They had these big, it was like a, like um, chest or urns and they cast the money in there. And he says the, the Lord was observing while they did that. Many rich cast in much. There were many of them. There were a lot of people and they were all rich. Many rich. Just imagine. And those of you who are the accountants in our midst can begin to do the calculations. Many rich cast in much. What an offering that must have been. And then along came a little widow woman. She cast in her two mites. Enough to buy bread for a day. That was all she had. She had nothing else at home. And the Lord said he called the attention to this pathetic little coin sitting on the top of all these heaps of gold and silver, whatever the coinage was. On top of all of that, here sits the widow's two mice, and the Lord calls the disciples' attention to it. And maybe just as she's going out the door and around the corner, he points to her and he says, This woman cast in more than all of them. Now how do you do the accounting on that? Because she put in all her living. She put in all her living. It means when she gave that offering, she went like this. Nothing else there. Nothing else in her purse. Nothing in the house. Nothing under the mat. Nothing under the mattress. Nothing in a sock. Nothing in a bank. Nothing in a retirement fund. Nothing in a a pension. Nothing in T-bills. Nothing in stocks and bonds. She didn't have anything. She cast it all in. He says she gave more than they did. Because the Lord looks not only at what we put in the offering. He looks at what we keep. And he measures what we put in by what we keep. He knows what our total resources are. And that's just talking about the subject of money. We could talk about any of the other subjects too. All the other material possessions that we have. And our time. How much of our time? He knows how much we have. We all have 168 hours every week. Some people can't even make their bed with that. And other people with 168 hours can govern nations. What do you do with the time God gave you? And what do you do with the money? Some people would be horrified if right now before us all, they had to lay out all their investments and all of of the money that they have put away. And if that were to be compared, uh, A.T. Robertson did that one time, one Sunday, he was a preacher uh, many years ago in a Baptist church back east. And when they brought the offering up to the pulpit uh, and left it on the little table before the pulpit, right before he spoke, he called on the deacons that day and he said, count the offering. And he waited. They, I don't know if they sang a hymn or what, but he waited while they counted the offering. And he said, announce to the congregation how much it is. So they announced how much it was. And then he said, now take another offering. And he gave them the the plates again, and they went out, and he went with them. As they went down the aisles, A.T. Robertson went with him, and he went to every person, and he watched what they put in the offering. And he went to the other one, and he watched what they put in And he went up and down the, the aisles, every row with them, to see what they all put in. And he told the deacons, bring it and count it. And they brought it, and they counted it, and the second offering was bigger than the first one. And he was hot. He was preaching that day about stewardship. He said, you gave more money in the second offering because I was watching. And you were trying to impress me and you were worried about what I was going to see. He said, I want to tell you something. God was watching on the first offering. He knows what you put in and he knows what you kept for yourself. Now what we keep for ourselves, God doesn't begrudge us. He knows that we need food and clothing. He knows about our necessities. But in 1 Timothy 6, 8, it says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and covering, let us be there with content. Ooh, but with what food and what covering? It would be wonderful if you could go and see how the rest of the world lives and with what little people can be Content. Some of you know, some of you have traveled, and others of you just have no idea. God has given us children. Many of us have children. I have seven. God is going to look at how we raised our children. Some people bring their children to the meeting on Sunday and obligate them to sit and listen. And then as soon as they're old enough to do as they want, they're out in the world. What happened? Something went wrong in the home. Something went wrong. They weren't raising them for the Lord. They raised them for the world. They raised them to be just like all the people in the world. They take all their cues for styles, for friends, for entertainment, everything, their values in life and society. They take it all from the world. And they go to church on Sunday. And it is a plague upon evangelical churches today. The children of believing men and women who have been lost completely to the world and who are being lost completely to the world. Many of us have failed as parents. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that in in the home you shall speak of the scriptures. It says you'll have it as frontless on your eyes. You'll speak of it when you rise up and when you lie down and when you're walking. You'll have it on the post of your house. It is the responsibility, not of society and not of the Sunday school and not of the Christian school. It is the responsibility of the parents to raise the children for the Lord. And you don't do that the same way you you raise hogs. Now I'm going to talk like a southern boy. You raise hogs. What do they do when they raise hogs? Well, they got a piece of ground out back. They put a barbed wire fence around it. They put a trough in there so they can throw the slop in there for the hogs. And if they're real nice to the hogs, they have something, a little shed or something they can get up under so they don't get wet when it rains. And that's it. Well, if they get sick, you might call the vet. It just depends. And you just slop the hogs and let them live out there. And some people think raising children. You just give them food. And you put clothes on them. When they outgrow those, you put some more on them. And uh, you send them off to school. And that's raising kids. They have a place to sleep. They eat their meals. And then they go do whatever their activities are. And some people invest no more time in raising children than they would invest in raising hogs. The judgment seat is coming. Of this you may be sure. If God has given you children, you are responsible before him. The Lord at the judgment seat of Christ will review how you raise them. And brother, sister, you better take it seriously. Every day of your life, that is your job and your ministry. The raising of those children for God. And God help the women and the men who in the homes teach their children to be hypocrites. They talk to them a different way than the way they do in front of us here in the meetings. God help them who are raising their children for the world in one day, is all going to be found out at the judgment seat of Christ. Our, Our funds, our time, our talents, our children, our material possessions, everything, every aspect of life is going to be under review at the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to be a severe judgment. And so it behooves us all to get ready for it now. And if anything has come to mind while we've been talking, and you say, ooh, this is something I need to work on. This is something I need to change. This is something I need to handle differently. Then you better do it today. Don't go home and say, I'll think about it. Don't go home and say, I'll pray about it. Take an action step today. Deal with it today. While you know the Spirit of God is speaking to you from his word. And finally, I would be remiss if I didn't speak to you at least a little bit about the crowns at the judgment seat. I just want to mention them. Maybe in a future visit we'll have time to to go through them all. There are five crowns mentioned. And the crowns are all of grace, you know. God doesn't have to give us a crown. But the scripture says that God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. And God is going to give crowns. And so even though the judgment seat is severe, it is also a judgment seat at which any deed of service done for the Lord, right down to, he said, the Lord says, a cup of water given in his name will not lose its reward. It's not the greatness of the deed. Even that cup of water. Don't wait until you can figure out some great thing to do for God. Just start living for Him right where you are. Right whatever it is you have to do. Even the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes said, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And that's it. That's good advice. Just start serving the Lord. Do whatever your hand finds to do with all your might for Him. There is the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5, we talked about that. So I'm just going to read it and uh, mention it briefly and pass on. 2 Timothy 4, 5. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge shall give me at that day and not to me only, but also to all them that love his appearing. And we spoke about that the other evening. Loving the appearing of the Lord affects the way we live. It orders our priorities. It's not just a thing where we have an interest in knowing uh, who the two witnesses are going to be and, uh, What the mark of the beast is going to be and all of these prophetic details we want to memorize and we're mesmerized by prophecy. It's so exciting. What we want. All these things have to happen. But all these things to us are just stepping stones to being with the Lord. They're stepping stones to his coming to this world to reign. So we're not really so interested in the events. We are interested in them. And it's not wrong to study the book of Revelation. Of course it's not wrong to. But there's a reason for it. To love, his appearing, affects the way I live. It affects what I do with my money. It affects what I do with my time. It affects what I do with my children. It affects how I do my job. It affects my priorities in life. It affects my relationships with other people if I love the Lord's appearing and he's coming soon and all my opportunities are going to be gone in an instant of time, they're all going to be gone forever, then I want to live Christian life with an intensity of devotion. Uh, The preachers, uh, when we teach people to preach, we tell them this old saying that most preachers know, preach as though never to preach again and as a dying man to dying men. That's the advice given to preachers. Not stand up here and flip through a book and give a few interesting anecdotes and illustrations and seven points that start with P about this and seven points that start with G about that and show all this knowledge that you have. It's not, it's not shoveling hay. It's not giving theological discourses. It's not even as good and important and necessary as it is just giving sound doctrine. That is important. And we would never for a moment underemphasize that. But it's to preach the Word of God with the intensity that you may never preach again. This is it. This is the last time. Okay? If that advice is good for preachers, I want to tell you something. It is good for everybody else, too. When you get up in the morning, live your Christian life as though never to live it again. As a dying man. Living in the midst of dying men. As a dying woman. Living in the midst of dying women. As a person who this is your last day on earth. Because the Lord may come. And if he comes today. What will we have left undone? And what about the time? And what about the money? What about all those stocks and bonds. That didn't come to maturity? You can't take it with you. Fortunes left behind. That way, and all the material things left behind, so much baggage we have and so much time wasted and so little attention to relationships with family and friends and co-workers, so little done for Christ. So many opportunities, so little done. But those who have loved the Lord's appearing and have let that love control their lives, the Lord says a crown of righteousness a crown of righteousness. What are they going to do with the crowns? Revelation 4 says they're going to cast them at his feet. We're going to cast them at his feet. We're not going to walk around bragging with him. We're going to be on our faces before the Lord, throwing those crowns before him. So you might say those crowns are something that we can use to praise and honor the Lord. It's like a present that we can offer to the Lord. How would you like to be the only person at the birthday party who didn't bring a present? For the guest of honor. Have nothing to cast at his feet. I'm here. I'm saved. But I'm empty handed. Will you have a crown of righteousness? You can. Not to me only. But to all those that love his appearing. He says. In 1 Corinthians 9 verse 25. He speaks about the second crown. The second in our list. Which is the crown incorruptible. The crown incorruptible. Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. But we an incorruptible. An incorruptible crown. Some people believe this is not a fifth or one of five crowns. That there are only four. And that this crown describes the nature of all the other four crowns. Well, never mind. If they want to believe that, we're we're not going to argue with them about it. The important thing is it is a crown. It's an incorruptible crown. It can't perish. It's not going to be left behind. Trophies and awards gained in this life are not going to be taken to heaven. But all service done for Christ will be rewarded. In heaven with a crown that will not pass away. An incorruptible crown. It's not what the sports team gave you. It's not what the neighborhood gave you. It's not what they gave you at work. It's not what they gave you in the nation. It's not the medals on your chest. It's what the Lord gives you when you get the glory that really matters. The incorruptible crown, he says. And Paul, in the context, he's speaking about those who sacrifice themselves. He disciplined his body, he said. He brought it under discipline. He lived in such a way like he was in constant training to serve the Lord that he might run the Christian race well. He's speaking about living the Christian life with discipline and commitment, and those who do that will receive an incorruptible crown. But God cannot give you that crown. If you don't live that way. Oh well. It'll just be enough. We say with false piety. It'll just be enough for me. To see the Lord's face. What do you mean by that? Is that a polite way of saying to the Lord. I don't care about your crowns. I'm getting in heaven. That's good enough for me. By the skin of my teeth. I hope we don't mean that. Would it be enough to bow before him and have no crown to cast at his feet? An incorruptible crown is offered. A crown of righteousness is offered. And in Revelation 2.10, the third crown is the crown of life. The martyr's crown. Be thou faithful unto death and I will give thee the crown of life. Those who are willing to die for what they believe. They tell the story about a in a certain country under a dictatorship and uh, Christians were meeting in a secret place together and suddenly two soldiers from the government walked in and shut the door and uh, told the people uh, everybody that was a Christian that wasn't a Christian to get out. Everybody that wasn't a true Christian to get out. And they were going to slaughter. They gave that to be understood that they were going to slaughter the rest of them. And the place cleared out. And there were a few left at the end. There were a few who didn't leave. And the soldiers said, okay. They put their guns down. They said, we're believers. And we wanted to have fellowship, but we didn't want any of the fake ones here. So we said, (laughs) they had a wonderful time of fellowship together. (laughs) Be thou faithful unto death. You know what would happen to evangelical Christianity in the West? if it was put under a situation like that. Do you know that believers in other countries pray that American Christianity will come under some kind of persecution to purify it? Do you know that? That the church here will be purified? Well, the minute you have to suffer for Christ, suffer loss for Christ, sacrifice for Christ, and be counted as rubbish for Christ, lose your job, Lose your family. Live in fear for Christ. I tell you, a lot of these comfortable 21st century high-tech Christians will just turn around and disappear like the morning dew and the noonday sun. They'll be gone. Be thou faithful unto death. How long do we have to obey God's word? At what price do we have to follow the Lord? I realize the seriousness of the words I'm saying. And as I say them, I pray for me and for you. May God give us strength to walk in obedience to his word, whatever the cost might be. May he give us grace to do that. The crown of life. In James 1.12, he says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he is tried, he will receive the crown of life. Sometimes it's the martyr's death, and sometimes it's the martyr's life. To live and to suffer under temptation, under trial. But to be faithful, to endure, to not throw in the towel, and not turn back, and not give up. And even though you can't understand it all, to be able to stay with Job. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And you refuse to let go, and refuse to turn back. The Lord says he will receive a crown of life. A crown of righteousness, an incorruptible crown, a crown of life. And then there's a crown of glory, First Peter 5, 4, a crown of glory. And that crown is offered to those who are the shepherds, the elders. He says, verse 1, let's read verses 1 to 4. The elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. All of us, those of us who are involved as shepherds of God's people have to remember this. The people belong to God. We're under shepherds. There is the chief shepherd and we work for him. We work for him. And if we feed the flock of God and if we take the oversight, that means we watch over them carefully like a shepherd watches over his flock. It means to to look over and some people don't like to be watched. They don't like to have their lives scrutinized. They want to just come to meeting and then go off And do whatever they want to during the week. And they think how I live during the week has nothing to do with who I am in church on Sunday. How confused they are. Poor confused souls. You belong to the flock of God. And it is the chief shepherd in heaven that has put under shepherds to watch over us. To take the oversight. To feed us. To guide us. And to be themselves an example he says here. Be examples of the flock. And they don't do it for money. They're not looking for a salary. It's not a job you choose, like a career that you want to go into. They were called by the chief shepherd to do this. And they'll receive a crown of glory, the Lord says. And sometimes when they're up late at night worrying because you know how people are, they'll live however they want to and go to bed and sleep fine. And, the, and those who have the oversight can't go to sleep. There's some problem in the church. There's some problem with some young person. There's some problem with some older person. There's some problem with some family. There's some difficulty the congregation is going through. Someone is suffering. Someone is falling into sin. Someone is being tempted and led astray. And all of these things, the shepherds, when they know about them, they're worrying about them. I use the word worry in a Christian sense, meaning they express all their concern to the Lord about it in prayer. And it's on their minds and And they just can't sleep. Sleep is gone from them. But it's funny. The the people who are causing this sometimes can lie down and go to sleep and not have a a moment's trouble. They don't even need somonics. They just go to sleep and sleep peacefully. It's hard work. It's demanding work. And he says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, that those men will give account to God. He said, they keep watch over your souls as those who must give an account to God for that. It's serious work. But the Lord promises a crown of glory. For those who serve the chief shepherd, a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And finally, the crown of joy in uh, First Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians chapter 2, the last two verses. What is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? A crown of rejoicing. This has been called often the soul winner's crown. Paul went to Thessalonica. He preached the gospel there. He saw people saved. He saw a church established. And he said, that's my crown of rejoicing when I get to heaven. The crown of rejoicing. The soul winner's crown. People who were saved. People who came to know Jesus Christ. And who are going to be in heaven for all eternity. The crown of rejoicing. We're going to rejoice together. The soul winners and the church edifiers. But as for the church destroyers, the gossipers and whiners and complainers. And the false brethren. We had it in 1 Corinthians 3. It says, Whoever destroys the temple of God, him will God destroy. God will settle all accounts. How wonderful it would be to get to heaven and to have a crown, an incorruptible crown, a crown of life, a crown of righteousness, a crown of rejoicing, a crown of glory. To have these crowns, to hear the Lord say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. To look out there and see people, other people's lives who've been touched in some simple way by our lives and who've been edified. And to be able to say, Thank you, Lord, for making it all possible. All praise and honor and glory to you. Because I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, not going to be any bragging in heaven. Nobody's going to be there bragging about what they did. All the glory, you see it in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, all the glory and the honor and the praise goes to Jesus Christ. Because without him, we are nothing. Let's be clear about that. What did the Lord say in John chapter 15? I am the vine, you are the branches. What can the branches do separated from the vine? Nothing. What can we do separated from the Lord? Nothing. Without him, separated from him, we are nothing. And so any good thing that we're able to do is because we live in fellowship with him. And I hope we do. And in the light of these passages that we have looked at, and there are so many, maybe in a future trip, we'll continue. And maybe you'll continue on your own. I hope you will. In the light of these passages, it behooves us to do with our lives what the songwriter said. Take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee take my voice and let me sing always only for my king take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee take my silver and my gold Ooh, now that's big He's not saying that to the bank. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Don't tell lies. Take my love, my God, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. And I'm going to ask you this morning to make that commitment to the Lord. Take me. Lord, all that I am, all that I have, take me. Don't give God half. Don't make a deal with God. Put it all on the altar. Remember the judgment seat of Christ. Remember the work of Christ at the cross for you. Remember the blessing that we have of having the Holy Spirit living in us and his word in our hands to equip us and the encouragement of the saints with whom we have fellowship. And don't hold anything back don't save anything for later years when you could serve the lord now give him your time your effort the love of your heart the first place in your life now let today be the day when we said god took my life this day because this day i gave it to him let's pray we give thanks heavenly father For the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. By grace through faith not of works lest any man should boast. We give thanks for the blood that was shed at Calvary for us. For the Lamb of God who took away our sins. For the blessed hope that we have of seeing him and being with him in eternity. And for the privilege that we have of living for him now in this life. And we pray that you would help us. In the light of the judgment seat of Christ, to so order our lives and our possessions, so that all is at your disposal before it is eternally too late. And that we would cull out and purify out of our lives, purge out anything that is not pleasing to you, anything that is not in accordance with your word and your will. That we would begin to walk now in our relationship with you in that transparency that will be at the judgment seat of Christ when everything will be revealed and manifest and declared. Help us to live that way, to live with eternity's values in view. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.